Christmas. Um, I love Christmas. Christmas just takes things and it makes everything better. So, like, sure, my neighbor has, like, this giant inflatable gaudy snowman in their yard, but it's Christmas, so it's okay. And their sweaters are ugly and the eggnog still tastes like eggnog, but it's Christmas, so it's okay. And um, just last week, I heard my nine-year-old singing in her room about the searing pain of a past lover. And usually that wouldn't be okay, but at Christmas time, I'm like, last Christmas, I gave you my heart. I'm singing right along with her. It's okay. Christmas makes everything better. I say, thank you, wham. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Even at Christmas time, I even, Christmas even makes that okay. Even that. <laughs> Now, okay, let's get that off there. Now, I might be a pastor, but can I just say right off the bat, when it comes to Christmas, I'm not that guy. Like, I don't feel like I have to write Christmas with, you know, Christ in all caps when I write Christmas. Like, I understand. Like, uh, I'm not the guy who has to Christianize everything. Like, candy canes, well, they might be shaped like a shepherd's staff to remind us to adore the newborn king, or they might just be a really bad candy. And it's okay. Like Frosty, he's, he's just a magical snowman, friends. And Christmas trees. The origin of Christmas trees is probably has more to do with Germanic tree pagan worship. And I'm okay with that, right? Like, I don't think any of us are like putting up Christmas trees and then tempted to worship Das Tannenbaum. I, I don't think so. So I, I get it, like Christmas is kind of convoluted in our world, and, and, and it's so fun, and yet I have to admit that we, when we come in this space, and we come to this place, and we have to reflect on like this difference between Christmas 2,000 years ago and Christmas today, like when we take a deep breath and we actually listen to the Christmas story, this whole American Christmas experience gives me some pause. It is splendidly ironic, don't you think, that we celebrate the one who came to set us free from the debt of sin by going into massive credit card debt. We celebrate the Prince of Peace by battling our way through traffic and fighting with family members. We celebrate the utter simplicity of the nativity by filling every possible second of our lives with things and stuff. We celebrate the one who taught us to love our enemies by declaring war on anyone who calls a Christmas tree a holiday tree. Like, how dare you call my Germanic pagan tree a, a holiday tree? Die! <laughs> like, it's like a bad joke. How did this happen? So, um, today, let me be upfront here. I'm not that guy. I have no desire to destroy your American Christmas experience. I hope it's wonderful. I mean, pump up that snowman and play last Christmas on repeat and drink your eggnog, do it upright. I'm great with that. What I am suggesting is that when we come here, there is a tension, and it's a tension that we need to feel. It's a tension that people have been feeling for at least 2,000 years. 
It's a tension that is in the text itself. It's a tension between what we see all around us and what we see in the nativity, between what is declared everywhere you listen in the world and what is declared from heaven. Today, I'm going to look at a passage that gets to the heart of this tension. It's... um, if you grew up in church or you come to church on Christmas time, it is very familiar. Like every little kid's said this in some pageant at some time. It's Luke chapter 2. Because in Luke chapter 2, we're going to find God. We find our Savior. We find, it says, the thing that we've been looking for our entire lives. The one who can give us new life, give us true peace. But here's the thing. Um, he doesn't look anything like the American Christmas experience today. He doesn't look anything like what we expect. So that's where the tension begins, and that's where I want to begin today. It's in Luke chapter 2. Let me set this up for you. Luke chapter 2, if you're, if you're new to the scriptures, um, Luke is, the gospel of Luke was written by a guy named Luke. Yeah. <laughs> About 60 AD, he's a physician. He's one of the earliest Christians. Um, so he's, he's, he, Friends with Paul, Silas, Timothy. Like, he actually went on missionary journeys with them. He was there for the miracles. He was there for the riots. He was there when these things happened. And he also hung out with Peter and James in Jerusalem. Um, at this point, 60 AD, most of that stuff is in the background. And when he's writing, he now has access uniquely to hundreds of eyewitnesses, uh, eyewitness accounts. Many scholars believe that when he's writing Luke 2... His main interview was with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So this is like eyewitness accounts, and he's trying to write this out for for this guy named Theophilus. He's writing out the whole story from the beginning. And so this is where we pick up the story of Jesus' birth, the first Christmas, in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it begins like this. These might be familiar terms. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So stop right there. Before we get to, like, the manger, before we get to, like, uh, there was no room in the inn and shepherds coming, before we get to the the seven pounds, three ounce baby Jesus... He's going to take us, and he says there's two things, two things we need to know, be aware of when we come to this story. Something that you might have just passed over in the past, but Luke really wants us to stop and see this. The first thing is that this is during the the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor. Can I just say there are certain things that um, culturally you don't really have to learn. You just pick it up. It's part of the fabric of your culture. So um, l- let me uh, demonstrate this, hopefully. If you were alive in 1990, will you please complete this phrase for me? All right? All right, stop. Collaborate and... How did you know that? Like all the millennials are like, seriously, how did you know that? So, because if you lived in 1990, you knew this guy. Ice, ice, baby, vanilla ice. Like, no one has to teach you. It's just part of the fabric of a world. Like, it's part of, like, mullets and baggy parachute pants. And, you know, this is the stuff of the 1990s. Like, if you were alive, you just picked it up. Even if you wish you didn't. (laughs) Even if you, you wish you could forget it. It's there. In the same way. In the same way. When Luke drops this phrase, it's a census under Quirinius. 
He just said something that everyone knows, even if they wish they didn't know, even if they wish they could forget it. This is a cultural reference that is going to bring some terrible things to mind. So this, Luke says, is the first census of Quirinius, but everyone knew about the infamous census of Quirinius. This would be more like 6 AD. Caesar sends this governor there to take a census of the entire land to annex Judea for himself. And when he comes... Um, a guy named Judas the Galilean leads, uh, forms a militia, leads an uprising, says, you will not take a census here. And Rome responds by slaughtering thousands of men, women, moms, dads, babies. Thousands of their friends died. So when you say the census of Quirinius... Even if he's not talking about the same one, it brings a lot of stuff up. Like, this is something you can't forget, even if you wish you could. I mean, this is something that historians talk about, Josephus and his antiquities of the Jews. This even comes up in Acts, Acts chapter 5. This just comes up in conversation. This whole thing is etched in your mind like the lyrics of Ice, Ice Baby. You can't forget it. Now, this census, let's be clear, is not that census, but by mentioning it, Luke is bringing up a whole ba- lot of baggage with it. He's, he's bringing up some things that his original audience would have immediately felt and appreciated. So I want you to get this. When you say a census of Quirinius, we're not just talking about a census here. We are talking about Rome's means of control. We are talking about taxation. If Caesar could number you, he could control you. If he could take your money, he could force you to do his will. They literally equated it at that time, a census with slavery. To take a census was to, to an act of oppression, control, dominance. That's what's going on. So the first thing you need to know about the first Christmas, Luke says, is it was during a census of Quirinius. And that... Census was decreed from Caesar Augustus himself. That's the second thing. So Luke wants us to know first, it's a census. It's an act of oppression. It's an act of slavery. Rome is putting their control on us. And then he wants us to know that this decree, before we hear the decree from heaven, that today a Savior is born and he will bring peace and goodwill to all men. Before we hear that decree, he wants us to know that this whole story didn't start with that decree. It started with the decree from Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus, if um, depending on your education or how much you watch the History Channel, you may or may not know a few things about this guy. He is um, one of the most dominant figures in the history of the world, period. I mean, this is the man who, like, named a month after himself, and it stuck. I'm not joking. That's what August is. That That's this guy. Uh, he, through ruthlessness, violence, and just sheer brilliance, he reshaped the world. He, he more than doubled the Roman Empire, created what we know as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that for a, an era of time, unlike the world has ever seen before or since, he brought the whole known world together under his control. He is the quintessential king. If you make a top 10 list of like all the most powerful people in the history of the world, he makes the cut every single time. He's a big, big deal. He's a king of kings. People called him a god. His glory, the glory of Rome, spread from Syria to Spain, from Netherlands all the way down into Egypt. It was immense. Now, now, here's the deal. Here's where this gets interesting. If you know a little bit about Caesar Augustus, 
9 BC, there is a proclamation made on the entire eastern side of the empire. The Roman proconsul of Asia, Paulus Fabius Maximus, if you want to know his name, was made, he makes this proclamation that the birthday of Augustus himself should be celebrated. In fact, it's so important that the birthday of Augustus shouldn't just be like President's Day, our President's Day, right? It should become the new year. I want you to listen to this decree that they made. This decree was so important that they took it, they etched it in marble, and they put it up in the, uh, in the town centers of all these towns all across the Eastern Empire here. It reads like this. This is a famous in- inscription. It says, Since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, he is the answer to the order of all things whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, we couldn't have imagined such an amazing Caesar, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to prosperity posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done and since the birthday of the god augustus the god augustus was the beginning of the good news that his birth begins the beginning of the good news literally the gospel for the world that came by reason of him i I want you to hear these words this was the proclamation made all across the eastern empire eastern part of the empire providence has given us a god his name is augustus He is the savior of all humankind. He will bring peace on earth. His birth has begun for us a new era of human history. The appearance of Augustus is good news, literally gospel for the whole world. And therefore, we should celebrate him. Does that sound familiar? Anyone? So I want you to get the context here. Two things we have to know about the culture before we enter into this story. Two things. The first thing is that this is during the the census of Quirinius, that the whole world feels utterly enslaved to Caesar. And number two, the whole world looks to Caesar as their savior. Did you hear that? The whole world feels enslaved to Caesar, this almighty Caesar, and the whole world looks to him as their savior at the same time. Like if you're sitting there wondering, like, how could that be? How could someone worship something that enslaves them? How could someone worship something that enslaves them? It's a very old question, but eerily contemporary. Verse 4, so Joseph, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, and because he belonged to the house and line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married uh, to him and was expecting a child. So get this. They're, they're up in the north, that little dot up there, is, that's Nazareth, up in the north, and they're supposed to head all the way down to Bethlehem. If you track it, it's about an 85-mile journey, probably a little further. And, and if you're sitting there wondering, like, how does a very pregnant Mary survive such a long journey? Or if you've ever gone on a long journey with a very pregnant woman, how does Joseph survive such a very long journey? It's a good question. And the answer is, the Bible doesn't say Doesn't say. Doesn't say. 
So, the next question that you might be asking, and you should, then why, if the Bible does not say anything about how they went from Nazareth to Bethlehem, why, since 145 AD, does every single tradition of Christianity put Joseph and Mary, put Mary on a donkey? Every single one. Why? Why? Since 145 AD, every single branch of Christianity has always placed Mary on a donkey when they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Is this, is this one of those traditions that is needless and needs to be flushed? Like fruitcake. We need to get, or, or possibly. (laughs) Or, or is there something else going on here? So let me, let me just dial this in. This is not Luke's point, but this is something I want to change the, the nativity every time you see it, all right? I want you to look at this. Every time you look at your little figurine there on your mantle and you see Mary sitting on a donkey, I want you to know that this is not some needless tradition adding on top of detail that didn't actually exist. It's true. The scriptures say nothing about it. So historically, we don't know how they got there. But why then did the early Christians and every Christian branch of Christianity since put Mary on a donkey? It has nothing to do with Jesus and, and how Jesus got to Bethlehem, but it has everything to do with Moses. Because the early Christians knew, Deuteronomy 18, 15, that someday the ancient prophecy said that a prophet like Moses would come. And in Exodus 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 20, it says that Moses took his wife and sons and they traveled and he put them on a donkey and they traveled onto an epic journey that would save God's people. And so every time since Christians have looked at the scene of the traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem and they said, this is that, this is an epic journey to save God's people. That Why they do it has nothing to do with Jesus. It's Bad history, but it's really good theology, friends. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. But that's not Luke's point. Luke emphasizing something else. Can you see it here? Can you see it here? Joseph went from the, the Nazareth of Galilee to Bethlehem and the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. Like this is, uh, you know, when you're on the tollway and you're coming up to a toll plaza and then you hit the... There's, there's rumble strips. This is, this is Luke's version of rumble strips here. He's like tossing out Bethlehem and David here multiple times so that you see it. Because if you're an ancient synagogue attending Jew and you hear the word Bethlehem and David in the same sentence, you're immediately thinking, David, David, David. So this man from the house and line of David, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised that a son from the house and line of David, from the King David, would come. And someday he would be the Messiah. He would rule over the world. He would bring peace on earth. Huh. And Bethlehem, Bethlehem, where was the Messiah to come from? Micah 5, 2. He was to come from a little town of Bethlehem. And so when you read this, you're like, huh, what are the chances? While they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And I want you to see what Luke is doing here, because this is poetic. This is perfect. Caesar, the so-called savior of the world, 
just issued a decree that sends the whole world scurrying to fulfill his word. Everyone's running around, and in doing so, he just happens to perfectly fulfill the word of God. Caesar, almighty Caesar, the God, just happens to send Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at just the right time so that their firstborn will be born in Bethlehem, just like God's word prophesied. And you're like, what are the chances? Augustus was almost certainly ignorant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, Micah 5, 2, and yet his decree would perfectly fulfill the prophecies. And you're like, what are the chances here? It's almost, it's almost as if someone is controlling Caesar. It's almost the more he's battling to control the world, he's, God is actually using him to form the new kingdom. Huh. And she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them, no room in the end as it traditionally goes. So when, uh, when my son was born, we were what you call, I believe the word is poor. <laughs> so we lived in like this little apartment and, and we had no room in the end for the boy, right? So what did we do? We cleared out the back of our closet and for the first year of his life, my son's bedroom was the back of a closet. Yes, humble, but that's nothing compared to this. Jesus is born in a barn. Uh, kind of. Luke doesn't actually clarify here. Um, many, traditionally, it's in the site of a cave. So if you were to go to Bethlehem today and see the traditional site, it was in a cave. And it's possible it was. Um, many scholars today think that this was actually a single room home where the people slept on like this little raised platform over here and the animals were in the same space. And so Mary and Joseph were just in that same space in someone's house. It's possible. Again, we don't know the exact setup, but what we do see from this text is that Jesus, the promised king, is born into utter poverty. Do you ever, do you ever see this scene and just wonder, like, why didn't someone give them their bed? Like, I am not the most compassionate man. But even I cringe at this one, like a pregnant woman sleeping in a barn, having a baby, putting him in a feeding trough. Like, this is not good. I I try and put myself in that place, and I I think that maybe, maybe if you were to go back there um, at that time, there were probably, though, hundreds of couples that looked just like Mary and Joseph. They were not exceptional. In fact, the whole point is that they were utterly normal. Like, that's the point. And... And if a hundred needy couples come to you, it's just another one asking for a handout. It's just another person who needs help. And, and this whole thing begs the question then, if Jesus were to show up today in your life the same way he showed up the first time, a needy person just looking for a place to stay, someone needing your help, would you welcome him? So uh, years ago, probably 10 years ago at this point, I was a, leading a 20-somethings ministry in Dallas, and we were going on this excursion to this big, you know, in Dallas, everything's bigger. So a um, uh, big, super mega church, and we were going to go to some ministry event. And so I'm in the lead car, there's these cars following me, and we're all driving along, and we're, we're stuck in this traffic, and we're like, oh, it's a big event, it's going to be hard to get parking, we know it's sold out, so it's going to be hard to get good seats, so we're trying to rush there, and on the way there, um, <laughs> we're just like a mile away from the church, creeping along, and we see a guy on the side of the road, 
and he's trying to hitch a ride. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that, but then we notice, we get a little closer, and we notice he's on crutches trying to hitch a ride. And all of us are like, kinda, it's kind of awkward, right? We're all like, eee. And then one of the, the girls in the car is like, maybe we should stop. And, and I'm like, I'm driving, and I'm like, eh. Like, this guy, we, 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 I guess we could like fit him in somewhere. But, but the whole thing is, it's like, you know, we're going to this ministry event. And, and if we don't get there in time, we won't even get seats. I'm in charge of everything. I have to be there. Uh, like, this is a big deal. Like, I, you know, it's split second decision. We just pass by and um, we get to the event and it's like, it's going awesome. Like, we're so glad we got great seats. And then about 10 minutes into the event, do you know who I see go right in front of me? Guy with the crutches, same guy. And I'm like, oh no, he was trying to go to church. I'm like, wasn't there a story about like a man on the side of the road who needed help? And like these guys, these ministers go by and they're like, oh, I'm too busy, I can't help you. And then some, uh, I'm the bad guy. How did I become the bad guy? How did I become the bad guy? I felt so bad after that one. Like, I started stopping. Like, even if someone just pulled over the side of the road, I'm like, I'm stopping checking on him right now. It had me asking some questions. Is my life too packed, too busy, too full to help anyone? Why does it feel so inconvenient to help someone in need? Why is it so easy to come up with so many excuses of why it's not my job to help them? If Jesus showed up today in my life the same way he showed up 2,000 years ago as a needy person asking for help, would I miss him? These are hard questions. Luke wants us to see, though, that um, while many of us may have missed him, Someone didn't. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So this is like the most important event in the history of the world. This event will cut history in two. God himself is entering into space and time. The very Lord, the very one who was there at the beginning, who whose will holds together all things in his being, is entering into the world. So when you want to bring this news to the world, what do you do? Do you do what Augustus did and you post it on marble all around the empire? God's like, let's tell the shepherds. I love this picture. This is a famous picture, Adoration of the, the Shepherds by Hugo van der Goes. And the thing that is so stunning about this is the way he captures the shepherds. I want you to look at those guys. Those are not pretty men. <laughs> One guy was like missing some teeth. Like these are guys who are unshaven. Like do you understand in that world, this, this is the picture. Shepherds, that is not a glamorous job. You get that job when you can't get any other job. But God says, them, shepherds, those who have nothing to prove, those who have nothing in this world to hope in, that's who I want to tell first. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring, cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. I want you to hear this. 
interesting language here. Good news that a Savior is born. This is the only place in the entire Gospel of Luke that Jesus is referred to as a Savior. And it seems to be just um, the identical language that was used in the proclamation about Caesar Augustus. What are the chances? This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Like if you get into the, the actual language of this and you compare it, like the, the, the decree about who Augustus is and the decree from heaven about who Jesus is, it's, it's uncanny how much heaven's proclamation sounds like Rome's proclamation. Like Rome says, Augustus is savior of the world. His birth is ushered in a new era that will bring peace on earth. It is good news for all people. Like what are the chances of the language being that similar? It almost looks like Luke just swiped that language right off Caesar and slapped it right onto Christ. Like he's proclaiming the good news of the birth of the savior who's brought peace on earth, ushered in a new era of human history. Like this is like, if, if I was a professor grading it, I'd be like, you better footnote that. Like, let, let's put this in context today. And today, the, there were shepherds watching the fields at night, and the angel showed up and said, Hark, Jesus is going to make America great again. Like, right? If you heard that, you'd be like, well, you know that line was used before, right? Like, you didn't come up with that one. You know that, right? This is like copyright infringement. So do you think Luke... Like, I got to put that down. That's you're wrong. So Luke uses these same terms. Good news, birth of a Savior who brings peace on earth. He uses these exact same terms. Why, why, why? Do you really think Luke just thought, well, no one will know. In a couple thousand years, no one will read about Caesar Augustus anymore. And we've got the run on this. Unless. Unless that's his point. Unless his whole point is to make a tension to show the contrast between the decree of Rome and the decree of heaven. Unless his entire point is to force them and us to see the contrast between what Caesar proclaims and what Christ is. Augustus is famous. Nobody knows who Jesus is. Augustus is rich and powerful. Jesus is poor and powerless. Augustus changes the world with cunning, violence, armies, propaganda, and ultimately killing anyone who gets in his way. Jesus Christ changes the world by loving, forgiving, and dying for his enemies. It's the exact same words spoken over Augustus and over Jesus, but it's with completely different meaning. And what if that's the point? Like, what if the whole point of this nativity that Luke wants us to see here is that when we come to the nativity, we are supposed to see a baby who will change the the meaning of power, of greatness. A baby who will show us that greatness has nothing to do with wealth and control and ability to hurt other people. What if Jesus is showing us that greatness, glory, strength, kingdom has nothing to do with money, power, brilliance, position, control? So your whole lives, you've been told that the only way to get what you want in life is through money. But we come here to this scene and we see that lying in a feeding trough, utterly in poverty, he's what you've been looking for your whole life. 
Like your whole life, you've been told that in order to win, you need to be stronger, faster, smarter, better. But here, lying in utter helplessness is God's definition of victory. Like you've been told your whole life that you must defeat your enemies, kill those who get in your way. But here, lying in weakness is the proof that there's something more powerful than your enemies. There's something more powerful than killing your enemies. And it's dying for them. So it's not coincidental that when God wants to show us greatness, first he shows us Caesar Augustus and his definition of greatness. And then he shows us true greatness. By how? By setting aside all of his power, all of his wealth, all of his glory, and entering into our world. Specifically, Luke chapter 2. He becomes a helpless babe. He's wrapped in claws, laid in a manger. And then when he wants to show us the extent of his power and glory and greatness, he doesn't go and kill people. What does he do? Luke chapter 22, he allows himself to be killed. And then his body is wrapped in cloths and lied, laid in a tomb. Maybe that's the point. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary pondered, treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and uh, were just as they, which were just as they had been told. So the story comes to this close, and, and these shepherds, they, they see for the, their themselves, and they go share this message, and then they praise God about it. And at the close of this thing, we have this decree of Augustus, this decree from heaven, and this big question hanging in the air between the two. Which decree do you believe? Like, where are you going to find what you're really, truly looking for in life? Are you going to believe the decree of Augustus that you need money and power and control? You've got to work harder. You've got to climb the ladder. And will you worship the very things that enslave you? Or will you be- believe the decree of heaven? The good news that a Savior has been born, that he's what you're looking for. He's what you've been looking for your whole life. His birth offers a new beginning for our world and for you personally, that he can give you peace with God, peace with yourself. He became nothing so that he could be with you. He died so that you could be with God, and now he lives. He is God with us. Which decree will you believe? Would you recognize him if he showed up in your life? Would you stop your life? Would you make room for him? So, I just want to close the way Luke closes. He leaves us here pondering this scene. When you look at that and you look at your own life, do you feel the tension? What do you believe? Let's pray. Father, Father God, I just pray, Lord, that we would have eyes to see your Son, 
God, we live in a world where, where money and power, where control and success, where possessions, they seem to get the last say, Lord. They seem to be our gods. They seem to be our kings. They seem to rule over us. It's not so different from that day. God, I pray that this Christmas, that you would give us eyes to see your son, that we would see how you give us victory through humility, through simplicity, through his death and resurrection, Lord. God, take us there. In Jesus' name, amen.